Welcome, my friends, to another edition of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Very excited to be with you again this week. Um, this week, I'm doing an interview with uh, Diana Fell. Diana Fell is a fascinating person who has been in publishing for a considerable amount of time. She most recently was an editor at Tour Books. Um, she has three times been nominated for the Hugo Award, um, which is prestigious in science fiction fantasy. Um, but even more recently, um, since this interview was done, she's publicly announced that she's now a story producer for Serial Box. Serial Box is a whole new venture, which we don't get into, but you can check that out yourself. But Diana is a fascinating human being who, besides being incredibly well-educated and has lived a very interesting life, <clears throat> she is a, a woman. Um, I don't know if you call her of color. She's got an Asian background, obviously. Um, she's out queer married to a trans person, and those present all kinds of challenges in our current society. And we talk about what that's like and what her life has been like. It's been a really cool adventure. And she gives us an insight into that. Um, she's one of those wonderful people that I've met through my career as an attorney and also in publishing. And uh, I'm excited for you to get to know her as I have known her for many years. Also, why don't you get to know Abe's muffins? Um, you know, they're not just muffins. First of all, these vegan, allergen-free, beautiful baked goods uh, come in a variety of flavors. Lemon poppy seed, chocolate chip, blueberry. They make coffee cakes. They make a cornbread that will change your life. And what's great about Abe's muffins is that your kids will like them and they won't kill them. And you'll like them and you'll feel okay about having eaten them. You know when you buy that stuff, I've said this before, I don't care, I'll say it again. You buy something that's supposed to be good for you and taste great and you take it home and you take a bite and you're so disappointed and you double check to make sure you're not eating the packaging. That is not an issue with Abe's muffins. These are delicious and I'm telling you, they've come out with a chocolate brownie that will make you wonder what your life is all about. Because you're going to want to go out and buy more. It's insane. You might steal them from your kids. If you bought them for your kids, you'll be like, oh, no, you won't like these. Um, so try them. Uh, also, write to me. Um, if you go to isthatreallylegal.com, um, you can send us your thoughts about the show. You can ask us questions. You can suggest future guests. And you can ask questions about Abe's Muffins. So I look forward to hearing from you. And without any further ado, here is the amazing Diana Fell. welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Eric. <laughs> I, I, I'm excited because I've known you for quite some time in uh, 
but there's so much I didn't know about you until I started to do a little research before this podcast. You know, I knew you from being an editor, uh, sort of friendly on Twitter. And I was at the time, not just an attorney, but also a literary agent. And it's possible I submitted some work to you. It's definitely certain that we met each other at conventions and parties and events that uh, were very publishing oriented. But your background is so, uh, so interesting to me. And you have such a, I think it's got to inform the way you look at the world and the way you do your work. So I'm just going to get right into it. Um, I actually don't know where you grew up. So where'd you grow up? Um, yeah, so I grew up um, in Massachusetts, uh, north of Boston, um, you know, and it was very much a suburban style of upbringing. And it, um, I'm the daughter of um, first generation uh, immigrant parents who came to America after, you know, you know, the the fall of Saigon in 1975. My mom actually came a little bit later um, in the late 70s because she actually lived in France first and then got sponsorship and moved to Arkansas actually before, you know, she eventually like met my dad um, and then they both got married and moved to Massachusetts. It's very interesting, the story of the Vietnamese people after the the fall of Saigon, or as some people would say, the reunification of Vietnam, depending on how you look at it, I suppose. <laughs> um, but now the fall of Ho Chi Minh City. I mean, I, I've never been, and I, I'd love to go, by the way, as an aside. Um, Vietnamese people came to the United States, and some people think, oh, you know, they were in California or they were in New York. People have no idea the, the different types of experiences that Vietnamese people have had, including a substantial amount of people going to Louisiana, which I only know because there are some famous legal cases where they had to fight against the Ku Klux Klan and yes. won. But that's, yeah. a, that's a whole other story. It is, you know, it's so funny. Every immigrant nation or group of immigrants seems to have a similar fight. They come to the United States hoping for a better life Sometimes it works out really great. A lot of times they face a whole new level of discrimination, violence, and difficulties. And uh, they work their asses off to just be blunt. And then they have a toehold and create America anew. I I'm not expecting the Star Spangled Banner to play behind me. I'm just saying this is a not a unique <laughs> story and it's interesting. And you know, my family, uh, it's very different, obviously, and a longer time ago, but not, you know, not that different. I mean, I think that's very interesting. Do you, did you grow up with stories of Vietnam and that kind of thing? Or were you discouraged and were you, were you told you're American now? We're just, it's all about America. Um, well, I definitely grew up with Vietnamese culture, um, you know, admittedly. It was, uh, it was a balance between how much do you assimilate and how much do you carry your, your history with you. And I know um, I actually didn't grow up speaking Vietnamese as first language because my parents deliberately wanted to make sure that their children were able to assimilate, you know, very quickly. 
So, but I do have cousins who speak Vietnamese. My parents spoke Vietnamese to each other in the home. So it wasn't like a language that I never knew about. It was just one that I was never personally taught. Um, right. So, you know, but they were, uh, my extended family were so like extremely active in the, the Vietnamese um, community. There's actually a huge um, Southeast Asian, you know, population where I grew up. Um, you know, the town. One, yeah, so one of our neighboring towns is Lowell, which is, you know, traditionally known as the big mill town in, during the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and it actually is the home to an enormous uh, Cambodian, Vietnamese, Laotian population. Uh, so I definitely, you know, you know, grew up, uh, you know, ha having a lot of like Vietnamese traditions in the household otherwise. Um, you know, I was raised as you know, um, a Buddhist as well. And we'd have a lot of like family traditions with like ancestor worship that, you know, I just grew up naturally assuming like, okay, so this is just part of daily life. And I didn't realize until I, you know, talked to my friends who like had different forms of worship, you know, whether they went to church or, you know, they went to a synagogue that what my family did was very, very different from everyone else in my town. Wow. What, what an interesting perspective. And, you know, I, uh, as an older white Jewish guy, of course, I read a lot about Buddhism. Uh, but uh, there, what people who don't even take a look at it don't understand is there's probably as many different types of Buddhism as there are Christianity or other religions as well. Would that be accurate in your... Oh, I'm yes, not the, that's definitely accurate. I mean, I don't expect you to be a uh, an expert on Buddhism, but you certainly have some more familiarity than most of us. Um, so you grew up in Lowell. Is that part of why you were near Lowell, I should say, is uh, you end up going to college in Mount Holyoke, which I have to say, you're not the first woman I've talked to to have an all women's college experience. Um, and the people I've spoken to absolutely love that experience. Was that true for you as well? Yeah, that was definitely true for me. Um, I actually didn't have a strong preference about, you know, whether I went to an all women's college um, or or not. It, you know, it was just the college with the best, you know, English program and uh, that I applied to. But also, it was just a very welcoming atmosphere when I visited there. You know, I really, you know, love the Western Massachusetts, that sense of like open space um, and, and farmland, which is still very different than what I had growing up. Um, you know, and I still actually think a lot about Western Mass. I'm like, oh, Northampton, you know? <laughs> like for people what who don't, <laughs> I'm sorry, for people who don't know, um, west of uh, Boston, there's a couple of other cities, you know, Framingham, Worcester, Springfield, but then you get to the Berkshires, these beautiful mountains and wide open areas. And like you said, um, you know, Smith College is out there, UMass Amherst and, and um, Tanglewood. And, you know, there's just this beautiful rolling farmland and forests. And it's such a complete 180 from an experience of growing up in a mill town or even, you know, uh, just Boston or Newton or some of those places. Right. So yeah, and I definitely enjoyed, um, you know, my time at Holyoke. Uh, I was always, you know, you know, raised with, uh, you know, a very like liberal set of politics. But I think that I became 
know, even more politicized in different ways from my experience around Holyoke. Like I was always like, oh yeah, feminism, that's a good thing. Uh, but <laughs> it really opened up my perspective when it comes to, um, you know, intersectional feminism, when it came to queer issues um, and, you know, political issues faced by gender nonconforming folk. Um, Jokes Mount Holyoke, you know, has a huge uh, student population, you know, from both communities. Um, it was also a really welcoming space for my wife as well when she was transitioning. So uh, there's a lot, as, as I hear people say, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said, or frankly, just to explain, I want to back up a section. For people who don't know what intersectional feminism is, can you define that for us? Sure. Um, you know, it was a term first coined by Professor Kimberly Kinshaw, who is a Black feminist scholar, specifically to describe, you know, a feminist politics that also integrates the different cross sections of like people's backgrounds and identities and how that also affects how society treats them. So, for example, an experience of a white woman would be different from experience of a Black woman or a Black queer woman or uh, for myself as a queer you know, Asian American um, daughter of immigrants, like, you know, it was just looking at a, you know, how the pub politics would affect my identity in different ways um, to help bridge conversations of other people who might not have that same background. That is, uh, it's so interesting as again, older white cis guy growing up in the 60s and 70s, um, I've seen two, revolutions, if you will, happening side by side, probably more, but the two I'm gonna speak about are the sort of technological revolution and a sexual revolution that's not about sexual activity as much about sexual identity. So, you know, I went to college with a portable typewriter. I left law school with my own portable computer. You know, I start as an attorney with a secretary and over a fairly short period of time, my office is wherever my iPhone is. I mean, it's just kind of that kind of evolution. Now, parallel to that, I'm in high school in the 70s where, you know, queer was not a name that people, uh, LGBTQ people had. There weren't, there was no identity of LGBTQ people. There were just people who were in theater or played musical instruments. <laughs> And, they, you know, they were, it was, they knew that they didn't uh, feel the same way as other people and they hung out together, but they never acted on anything. Then there was sort of this opening and then AIDS happened, especially where I was living, you know, in Greenwich Village in New York when I was in law school and people had the experience of this opening up and this excitement followed by this incredible horror show of death and political upset around queer politics, which this is a lot to talk about on this podcast in a short period of time. But my point, and I do have one, I swear, is over time, as I've lived through this, watching both of these revolutions happen, I personally have gone through a big learning curve and really this isn't about me as much as it's, I think a lot of people who are not part of these communities have gone through or I, I believe really should go through this learning curve to at least see what people are talking about. 
And it's not your job to educate people, Tanner. That's not why I have you here. But as long as you're here and there's things happening while in the current time, I'd love to talk to you about it if that's okay. Um, because queer politics seems to be hand in hand with Black Lives Matter and other things that are happening, including trans identity and non-binary identity. When I think you know, it's happening a lot more in this current conversation about, you know, about gender, um, you know, presentation and gender orientation um, and sexuality and sexual orientation is that they're all different things, um, you know, and that, you know, these identities come in a spectrum instead of a binary. Uh, and now people are being more, um, you know, open to listening to conversations, you know, about these topics. Uh, when I also think that's is is very like interesting is um, I I I don't like saying generational divides because um, I don't think generational divide. I think it's you know generational divides implies like a fallacy that like if you're above a certain age you can't understand something. <laughs> right. Um, right. Thank you. You know, uh, but I do th think that like people that are younger than me, especially like people that are growing up now, you know, uh, that are teenagers now or kids now just have a wider and broader understanding of all these topics growing up uh, because that conversations are in the air and, you know, and people are seeing it as being more and more important, uh, which makes me wonder like, hey, when, you know, in a couple decades from now, what would our society look like when all these people are grown up in, in positions of power. So. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. I think in my time, people coming out as gay or lesbian, and then maybe later as bisexual or pansexual, these were big events. And there were plenty of, you know, after school specials. A lot of people were very excited when, I'm just gonna say her name, I, I don't think she's gonna even care about me or sue me, JK Rowling. Okay, she had at one point said, oh, Dumbledore is gay. Sorry, folks, spoiler alert. The books have been out forever. If you are having a problem with this now, I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know that it mattered so much. For some people it mattered. But she seemed to be really embracing the LGBT community or the LGB. <laughs> she seemed to be embracing something. Unfortunately, in my opinion, recently, she has been very critical of trans people and it has created quite a maelstrom in social media at least i don't know if it's had any other effect you're married to a trans person what's it like from your point of view what are you seeing because you have in essence more skin in the game or certainly closer experience what are your thoughts on that right um, I think everyone who had experienced Harry Potter um, as a young person growing up, you know, had and still had strong feelings about the books or the movies or the fandom, you know, a lot of people were hurt when it came out um, that, you know, J.K. Rowling has transphobic points of view and was openly advocating for that. Um, you know, and uh, I think part of you know, many people had different reactions. For myself, um, I actually, you know, you know, as someone in publishing, I can understand how that's big news. 
as someone who grew up as a Harry Potter fan, I also understand how that's big news, but I've also stepped away from both like the Harry Potter books um, and fandom for a long time, uh, partly because I just didn't like the ending of Deathly Hollows, to be completely honest. <laughs> and I, I was that's like, fair. that's it. Um, but there was also just a lot of elements to the books that I think uh, in when people have analysis, you know, thought about and criticized more and more, you know, after they all became published, you know, that representation, you know, felt very tokenized um, and stereotypical. Uh, the fact that, you know, in the wizarding world, the whole point was to convert back into this more conservative norm, and that's the return to normalcy after Voldemort was defeated, as opposed to actual revolutionary change when all the magical creatures and muggles got like equal treatment or something. Mm. Um, you know, the fact that like a lot of uh, minorities who were portrayed as being sympathetic were ultimately martyred, like Remus Lupin died in exposition along with Tonks, just so their child could be a war orphan. And as someone like who like also parents came from a war, like I found that extremely insulting, <laughs> like, you know? Um, you know, the idea that like Harry, you know, because he grew up as this child that faced great injustice, decided to be a cop and, <laughs> you know, and, and continue to enforce all the injustices of the wizarding world, like that, like, uh, I know a lot of anarchist friends who are like, Harry became a cop. I don't care about Harry Potter anymore. <laughs> you know? Wow, I see, I see an opportunity for a PhD thesis here and possibly even a very interesting critique article for you. Not that you need work to do, I'm just saying. And by the way, I meant to be above board. I just want to let people know also, I have represented you. I won't go into how or what, but we have been attorney client uh, before, which I very much enjoyed and I appreciate. Uh, just in case people, I don't know if it ever came, I just want to have full transparency. Um, speaking of transparency, um, I'm, I'm just skipping because I have ADD. You also, besides going to Mount Holyoke, what people probably don't know is you aren't just a book person or a, a publishing person. You then went to NYU mm -hmm. and you went, well, tell people what school you went to there, because NYU is a big university. Right. So um, you know, as well as being really interested in books, um, I was also a theater kid. As you, to tie it back, like I was like the drama geek and all of my friends, you know, uh, in high school, a lot of them later came out as being gay or bisexual or queer of some flavor. And we all hung out together in high school. So I'm like, okay, that's totally, it's totally still tracks, you know, your <laughs> high school experience and mine. Uh, but, um, you know, aside from which, uh, you know, after, you know, I, you know, after high school and college, I was also part of theater groups. Um, I was part of an Asian American performance group that specialized in like creating political works. Um, and when I graduated, you know, I was actually part of a another performance to for steampunk and traveled all across the country playing this like character that i made up uh in the steampunk community so is all it, of that is yeah. it possible that i saw you once at a romance writers convention at a steampunk costume party yes is it po that, okay it Good. is totally possible yes exactly okay, sorry um, to interrupt you 
just in oh. like flash, I was like, right. now I remember <laughs> it's possibly the first time we met. But yes, I have a picture of you. Maybe a top hat <laughs> and goggles. And anyway, please, please. Uh, yeah, so, you know, into all of that, um, you know, my, my vested interest in performance and in steampunk, you know, led me to uh, decide to get my master's in performance studies from Tisch at NYU. And specifically to um, study- if people don't know, Tisch is a fantastic school for this. Um, yes. If you're not getting this yet, Diane is pretty much the cat's ass. She uh, is clearly smart, went to an amazing undergrad, went through a rigorous grad program, um, and is just more evidence. I'm just throwing this out there since I'm not a literary agent anymore. People in publishing are woefully underpaid. Uh, and anyway, that was my little <laughs> PSA. Um, these people are amazingly talented because Diana doesn't live in a vacuum, by the way. She's one of the greats, but I'm just saying she's representative of the kind of intellect. We're gonna, you're, my podcast is going to have a lot of people from publishing. I don't know if you know this, Ben Dreyer is going to be on with me as well. Um, you, you must know Ben or certainly know of him. Mm -hmm. uh, ben Dreyer's English. Um, and lots of other people. I just find people in publishing fascinating, and you are absolutely no exception. So, now that I've interrupted you, my apologies. What was your experience like at Tesh? That must have been, you're, you know, you're living in Greenwich Village, which is the opposite of, you know, Western Mass in just about every way. Um, what was that like? Well, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, granted, like, you know, I got my master's after a few years working publishing because I was like, is there more to like than books? Let me like figure it out. So I already, so I lived uptown um, and I didn't live in like dorm housing. Uh, and the program I had was, ac was actually an accelerated program. So I thought like if I wanted to make a big life change and become a professor or something, I might as well get my master's really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, when I was there, I studied you know, specifically my project was about the performance of racial and national identity in steampunk subculture. So it was really fun. Like I really enjoyed the work that I did. It was basically everything I'd done previously for several years, except I wrote papers about it. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, and it also gave me a really good, you know, reason to just connect with like so many people in the community and interview them um, and think about, you know, what kind of larger messages people are doing and why people are fascinated at that specific moment about steampunk as a community and as a subculture. Because for a while, you know, around the time I had my degree, it was a huge, it was just coming into pop culture more and more and people were wondering whether this, you know, was a sign of like something greater about society. So there was a well, lot of like academics interested in that. Yeah, just for people who don't know, because you and I obviously do know, but can you in a very short encapsulation tell people what steampunk is? Okay, uh, well, steampunk is, it's both like to describe like a subcultural community, but also an aesthetic uh, that is uh, a retrofuturistic, you know, Victoriana, that deliberately subverts historical tropes about the time period. Well, that is absolutely true. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it a different way. Um, so imagine, if you will, people from Victorian times and their 
then going into a futuristic world, but still being Victorian. So a lot of mechanical arms and mechanical wondrous devices, flying machines, which didn't exist at the time, um, that kind of stuff, right? Um, and I think people who, uh, you, I don't, I'm sure there are people who hated them, but I very much enjoyed the two Sherlock Holmes movies that were done by uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. And there is an element of steampunk in those movies. It's, they're not steampunk per se, but mm -hmm. there is a feeling of steampunk. And that sort of, I'm sure that there's a million things wrong with those movies, but heck, I enjoyed them, I'm sorry. Um, but just to give people a flavor who may not be familiar with the term or the aesthetic, I'd say that's probably uh, good. Um, so you go through your master's program at Tisch and you're still at, uh, in publishing. What, uh, then did you just say, okay, I'm back in publishing? Did you, what, what happened next for you? Yeah. Um, so while I was like, as part of everything I, I was doing in steampunk, I have um, a blog about multicultural steampunk uh, called Beyond Victoriana. Is and, that still active by the way? Um, it's not as active as it used to be, but there's like huge amounts of archives, um, interviews, book reviews, media how can, reviews. How can people yeah. access that? Uh, the uh, website is just Beyond Victoriana, you know, spelled as it is, dot com. Uh, and, you know, it definitely got quite a bit of recognition in the community and won a couple of awards. Um, from there, uh, Liz Gurinsky, who was an editor at Tor at the time, headhunted me and said, hey, like, I want you as a blogger for our new website. It's called Tor.com. I know Liz. to blog about steampunk. That was very smart yeah. of her. So yeah, she's, she's brilliant. She's great. Um, and so that's how I first got involved with Tor um, as a blogger for several years. So by the time I graduated, um, you know, with my master's and decided to go back into publishing, you know, a spot had opened up at Tor Books in the editorial department. Um, and I was lucky to land there. And I worked there for almost a decade. I still have a lot of friends in publishing or people who want to be in publishing in one way or another. And they would be very unhappy with me if I didn't pick your brain a little bit about publishing. Mm -hmm. So I have opinions. Um, you're the guest. So we've seen, <laughs> let, let's put, I'll, I'll preface it. We've seen, when I was first a literary agent, it, it was profoundly easy to make certain kinds of deals and uh, have people enter in what is commonly called traditional publishing, what was then called publishing, which was, you know, one of the top New York publishers. People got advances, their books came out in mass market paperback, there were genre fiction. And, I mean, it's a very big topic, but we all saw a tremendous change a few years ago where a couple of things happened. Amazon came into being, and in a very short time, Walden Books, Border Books were just gone. So people were buying books online, mm -hmm. which changed profit margins tremendously because Amazon was selling these books at very low prices. Mm -hmm. And that economic reality affected things like advances and the true value of royalties. 
And then there was a big push for self-publishing at the same time because Amazon created this platform. This is, by the way, the shortest history of publishing ever. <laughs> but I'm correct, and you can jump in and say, Eric, you're all wrong. But, uh, but then because there was this platform for self-publishing, people did direct eBooks or paperback. And like anything else, there was, oh my God, there's some very good people who were never published, but there was also people don't understand why editing is necessary. And they're putting out this stuff and people are buying 99 cents books that weren't worth 99 cents. And that I feel like there still is an unsettled feeling in publishing as a result of this tremendous revolution that's now many years old already. Is this, I, I'd love to know your take on the status of publishing. Um, and I've given you so little time, so I'm sorry, but please. <laughs> what do you think? So, yeah, uh, in terms of like, you know, the change that you reference, um, you know, it's pretty much, uh, it coincided with several things. One is the rise of eBooks in general. Um, and that is also connected to the prevalence of um, affordable e-readers. Namely, you know, you had the iPad, your phone, and the Kindle. Yeah. Um, and so Kindle really was the tool that Amazon used that kicked off, you know, the tremendous growth in e-books in certain sectors. But it was also complicated because you can't track, um, at least on the traditional publisher side, how many Kindle books have sold because their units of, you know, measurement and their metrics of success were so wildly different. Like they were using page reads, they were using time spent on the ebook. Um, you know, the, they weren't doing like units sold, you know, in the same way traditional publishers would understand it. Right. So, um, but then again, they were, you know, paying authors according to like page count and stuff like that and so they and they had you know the kindle unlimited program so if you were selected to be a part of it you instantly got this you know automatic monthly payment that was a huge amount of money if you reach certain readers so like it was there was a lot of incentive for people to go indie there's still a huge indie community but i think now you know um you know, about a decade out, people have really realized that uh, indie has limitations. Um, it definitely has advantages um, in terms of distribution, but uh, in terms of like the, you know, the signal to noise ratio, like how do you actually get your book out noticed? That mm -hmm. is where indie writers have realized there was a deficit. You know, uh, it's interesting to me, it's a lot like um, iTunes, just as an example. Mm -hmm. um, you may be the best garage band in Cleveland. Uh, and so you can post your music up on iTunes like anybody else. Mm -hmm. But how is anyone going to find you, especially when you 2 and other very popular bands get the ads at the top when you open up iTunes, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, how do, you know, word of mouth may not be enough and people are drinking from a fire hose when it comes to the content that they're looking for. Uh, is that is that kind of where you feel it's at as well? Yeah, like anecdotally, I've definitely talked to a lot of, you know, indie authors as well as authors who are considered hybrid. That means they have traditional publishing contracts, but they also might self-publish their backlist or some other works, you know? And 
just like from stories I've heard, there's been a lot of shifts in terms of like what makes indie books successful. Um, there's a huge like part of the community that's very data driven and market driven, but that came at the expense of really the quality of writing. So they would try to push out books as fast as possible in order to hit the uh, Amazon algorithms, um, you know, the fastest in order to, you know, promote their books more. But then as a result, the algorithms have now adapted to think that books naturally come out, you know, new books from the same author once every two weeks. Or, or, or like, it's ridiculous. So the time frame is now artificially, in, you know, shortened. And, you know, there, so there has been like stories I've heard where the most successful indie authors are actually you know, farming out, you know, a bunch of ghostwritten books just to meet, right. you know, a superficial demand. Um, kind no, of like hydroponic, hydroponic authors. Yeah, you know, like, exactly. like, I'm not a farmer by any stretch. I mean, oh my God, but I do know that it takes time to plant a seed, cultivate it and have it grow. And no matter how much you can try, and there are hydroponic gardens all over Brooklyn on rooftops and whatever, it's still, uh, you know, you still have a life cycle of something that has to be born, nurtured, and then uh, released. Uh, yeah, and, and there are famous authors who, I think Michael Connolly might be one, who just openly says, and he's not an indie author by any stretch, he openly says, I don't write anything anymore. I have, he's kind of like the Thomas Edison of writers. He's got a group of writers who write his stuff for him. I don't know if he edits it, and I don't want to misrepresent him, but it feels a lot like that's the kind of thing he does. And I would bet you he's not the only one. He may just be the most transparent about it. Do you, is that a sense that you get as well? Well, you know, I definitely get the sense that authors um, are looking for different ways to write um, and not necessarily um, do it for craft. But because of that, there's been a backlash. There's been a lot of, you know, authors that want to be published, but then they realize that if they try to do indie publishing themselves first, they won't get, you know, translatable sales numbers and help them transition into a traditional publishing career, which a lot of writers actually want now. Um, there's also been, you know, I've been reading articles that are investigating just like the, not just like the quality of books, but there's apparently a lot of scams that happen, you know, um, on the like Amazon plagiarism platforms. or, you know, um, re-releasing the same book under a different title. Right. So there has been like controversies about plagiarism like that. Um, I've also, you know, read, you know, recent write-ups about, um, you know, books that, since they come out so quickly, um, they're, they're just focusing on filling up page count. Um, I've heard stories about groups of authors, like, you know, artificially, like, creating bestsellers. Um, with, Are you, you know, saying by I, buying each other's books in large amounts, or...? Um, you know, you know, and this is completely, like, anecdotal, so That's fine. I don't we're have... Not, we're not naming you know, names. Hard, right, so I don't have, like, hard, you know, proof, but, like, you know, stories about creating anthologies that, you know, have an inflated word count, but a very, very low price point. And so that might be picked up by USA Today as part of their bestseller list, which counts both digital and hard copy sales, but they don't assess how they count them. So, you know, so there has been like, you know, and this is completely like anecdotal, you know, stories I've heard that 
where authors are looking to get a bestseller tag because if they get a bestseller tag, then their algorithms change to support them more. And they will do, you know, um, you know, actions like this to artificially gain one. Sounds uh, like you're talking about people gaming the system. In other words, they're, they're learning the rules and figuring out how to make the most of the rules, much like tax loopholes, uh, which brings me as we're getting closer to the end. It is so easy to talk to you and listen to you. I just, first of all, time is going by really quickly. One of the premises of this podcast is that I talk to people about how they bump up against the law. Um, and I know we've talked about your LGBT experiences a little bit and, um, you know, there were recent Supreme Court decisions which uh, finally uh, said that you can't discriminate against trans people in the workplace, mm -hmm. which, you know, as an attorney, I was sort of surprised that that wasn't already on the books. Um, uh, that's just one example, I'm sure. But are there, is there anything off the top of your head or that you specifically want to talk to or about regarding uh, bumping into the law in your life in any way? As, as a member of a group or just as a writer, as a publisher, as an actor or? Um, sure, you know, and it's, it's interesting how you frame like, how do you bump against the law? Because I feel like, and I think a lot of people from marginalized communities, you know, could agree with me is that because of, you know, how we're positioned in society, uh, in, you know, where it is undeniably um, a white supremacist society, that is very heteronormative and, you know, and supports like, you know, certain groups of people, you know, at to the detriment of like millions of others. Um, that uh, what I think about a lot, you know, especially growing up um, is that for one of the one of the points I think is become more relevant in the cultural conversation is when people that come from privilege realize, you know, how the other half lives and they realize like, oh, like, I can't believe that, you know, all this police brutality is happening to black and brown folk. I can't believe that, you know, people are being detained at the border and children being locked up in cages. Like, and, you know, and the, and the thing that, you know, kind of doesn't surprise me, but I think you know, more people should should realize is that, you know, there are like millions of people in the United States that it is not a surprise at all, because that is how they've lived their lives, knowing that, you know, they will not be treated the same, knowing that they would have to struggle to be who they are and to live authentically, knowing that to help their family to survive, they'll have to mask their identity or, or assimilate or make some certain of changes to themselves. Um, you know, and and, and it's something I knew ever since I was a very young child. Like, you know, one of the most impactful, like, you know, experience that I had was the fact that, you know, that my dad like served for like the Southern Vietnamese military. And, you know, and we would go to like, you know, Memorial Day parades and like Veterans Day parades in a local town. Um, and I remember, you know, asking very young, like, why aren't you marching with everyone else? You know, and he right. said that it's because the Americans don't think about me like that. You right. know? Right. Right. Um, wow. I have to tell you, as a white guy uh, who grew up in very privileged 
situations, I had no idea how privileged my situation was. And even though as an attorney who part of what I do is I represent indigent defendants um, who have been convicted of crimes, doing their appeals, going into prisons, uh, the majority of those people are people of color. Uh, the majority of those people are not treated for a variety of conditions that they have. Um, and yet still, I personally will just tell you, I still, I labored under a bit of a fantasy life that things were different than they are. And this recent unrest during the COVID uh, pandemic has been incredibly educational for me. And um, that's part of why I'm doing the podcast. It's not, it's not so I can uh, put a badge on myself and say, see, I'm learning. It's not that at all. It's like, oh crap, I was so, and still am pretty ignorant. And I think it's one thing I can do is just, let's talk about it. I, I want everybody to hear about it. I have a platform, I'm grateful. And I, I love having people like you come on because you're not, I mean, how many times do you get a chance to talk about this? Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, you know, I, I really want you to have a voice, especially as brilliant as I know you are and you have so many gifts to give and that you have given that I've seen. I mean, people who don't know, how many awards have you been nominated for as an editor? Um, you know, I am, you know, a, I've been nominated for the Hugo Award for uh, long form editor, you know, three times now. That's and I don't huge. Know how... <laughs> I, I don't know how, yeah, please, I'm sorry. Yeah, the like Hugo I was is a say, science fiction, like look, the Hugo Award is the science fiction literary award, correct? Yeah, yeah. For those who aren't familiar with the Hugos, you know, it's basically like um, one of the most major awards in the field, it's internationally recognized. Um, it's run by uh, Worldcon, which is the world's oldest you know, running science fiction fantasy convention over a hundred years. And people also don't realize like, wow, like these conventions have been running for that long? Like, yes, I have. Uh, <laughs> and, and, for the, and for this year, like, you know, unfortunately, you know, it, it's like the Olympics. Well, that's not the unfortunate part, but the fact is like Worldcon, it hosts the Hugo Awards and it's like the Olympics and the fact that people like cities bid to host it mm -hmm. and people vote. Um, two years ahead of time, what the host city will be. Um, so this year it was supposed to be New Zealand. And unfortunately, <laughs> because of COVID-19, it all has had to move to become virtual. So I, I am sad that I won't be getting my, my Lord of the Rings trip you know, <laughs> uh, this year because I was, you know, because I've been nominated, but I, I do look forward to like seeing what happens. Yeah, you know, as we talk about that, we, we don't have enough time to get into this, and so maybe I'll just have to have you come back. People who aren't living in the world of science fiction fantasy, as they're often put together, also don't know the, uh, the controversy that's been brewing in that world uh, in literary circles. Uh, the misogyny, the difficulties of underrepresentation. It seems like, again, this is another revolution or uh, an attempt to stop a revolution by certain people. Um, because I, and I have not really represented a lot of sci-fi or fantasy people, but I have, because I'm in the loops, I see there's, uh, there have been a lot of difficulties in that area. Would you agree? Um, 
so yeah so right now um when i always talk about representation in the media in general i tend to say that like these conversations they've been, always been happening they've been happening for decades and they come in cycles um and the reason why they come in cycles is that uh what would happen is that you know there would be like some terrible inciting incidences of like sexism or racism of harassment or however people have a huge conversation about it there'll be like motions to make change um they'll happen for over the next few years and then there'll be some sort of backslide uh, which is unfortunate but i think it's also a state of our you know wider culture in the united states where a lot of people you know that's when burnout happens when you have activists who've been fighting for these things for a very long time and just see like cycles like happen again and again where they feel like they're just repeating the same you know fights over and over because of the backslide and so what's happening right now in science fiction fantasy is also reflective of the Me Too movement that has been happening for a while now, uh, the general conversation about diversity that's been happening, you know, for several years um, in the larger book community. Um, you know, that was start, you know, that the recent iteration was started in the young adult book community with We Need Diverse Books and has right. just expanded to different, you know, uh, places since then. And so right now there's just been um, a lot of uh, you know, reveals of, you know, you know, authors that are very well known or very well paid, <laughs> um, you know, ha you know, having, you know, terrible behavior in the past that they did not, you know, come clean about, or they did not, uh, you know, work on themselves, like, because you can make mistakes, and then you can work on it and become better. But right. there just seems to be evidence that people are not working on themselves. You know, and right. so, there's, so there's like been a lot of turmoil and I know a lot of people have been very sad and angry um, or just be traumatized because mm. they're, they're reliving these terrible experiences again in, you know, in the public sphere. Right. But I no, also think, yeah, there's no, definitely, please. there's definitely hope um, because every, as I mentioned, even though you keep having these cycles of conversations over and over again, what I have also noticed is that each conversation is different because it was improving upon the last time kind of on the conversation. And kind so, of like a two steps forward, one step back experience. Exactly. You know, so like, so as many times as it can be tiring, there's been enough improvements and enough people, you know, understanding more, more quickly that like, no, this has happened before. This is a terrible thing. We have to stop it. We have to try something new to push forward and the fact that people are still willing to push forward in new directions um, that creates a further reach you're right it is very much like the two steps forward one step back but at least we're that one step forward yeah and as, as you've been saying that it popped into my head the romance community has uh had had this kind of thing happen not just um with you know every once in a while there'll be a a piece in the major media about romance writers and they always paint romances in a very degrading uh, way. They don't get that some of these authors uh, are amazing at what they do and that romance as a genre is as diverse as any kind of fiction out there. 
I'm a big champion of romance, just in case I didn't come through. I've represented many romance authors. I came into publishing because of romance. My good friend, Suzanne Brockman, we went to high school together. And um, uh, I won't go into all of that. Someday I'll have her on this podcast, I hope. But the bottom line is that uh, the Romance Writers of America, the organization that represents romance writers, went through a tremendous revolution recently. That's a whole other show. But I really appreciate you talking about these issues because I think this is all, none of this is an accident. This is all happening at exactly the right time, in my opinion. And it's a real opportunity for people to become educated and liberated. Um, yeah, that's, that's my soapbox moment. Thank you. Um, so what do you see for the future for, and I think you for the industry, but also for you? What's going on with you? Um, yeah, so for me, like, um, you know, I don't know by the time this podcast airs or not, like people know publicly that I've actually accepted um, a job position that I'm really excited about, that I hope to share more of, and that still has to do with like editing science fiction fantasy, but in a new format and way that I haven't done in the past. So that is pretty exciting. I think overall for the industry, they are now realizing that you know, all of the, you know, chickens have come home to roost, so to speak. Like all these problems that have been, you know, systemic, whether it has to do with like low uh, pay for, for workers, the fact that there is like so much mistreatment and abuse, the fact that, you know, we are making people like support books that they don't, um, that they feel like do harm toward marginalized communities in order to make, you know, sales. Like, all these elements are coming to a forefront and more and more people in publishing are talking about alternate solutions, uh, about how we can treat our workforce better and how we can recruit and retain talented people from many different backgrounds in a supportive way, uh, in a way that we can support authors that are marginalized and have them, their books succeed the same way that we've supported like, you know, white authors for so many decades. Like, you know, all these things are now really coming to the forefront. And I, and it was like this plus COVID, I think was really like- A perfect the, storm. The perfect storm, yeah. And that, now people are like, well, since we're all working at home anyways, how does that change the workplace dynamic? Um, how does that, what does that mean if we, you don't have to stay in New York City anymore to get a job in publishing? Um, you know, what does it mean if like, we all theoretically have you know, more, more time to look at recruiting, you know, writers, um, looking at different platforms to distribute stories. I think uh, it really happened yeah. with, I'm just gonna say with queer publishing, when ebooks showed up, it completely changed it. You know, one of the downsides was there used to be this really great little bookshop in Greenwich Village. I keep talking about Greenwich Village. Sorry, folks, <laughs> you gotta come visit it. I don't live there, I went to law school there. But anyway, it was called the Oscar Wilde Bookshop. I don't know if you remember it. And it was basically like every young queer person would come from Kansas and Michigan and whatever, and they'd come to there and they'd get great books because they couldn't get them anywhere else, not where they lived in Arkansas or Dubuque or whatever. And then this miracle happened where people could download books onto whatever device they had, and they didn't have to go to the big city and nobody would know what they were reading. They could be on you know, uh, a bus in Tulsa 
or Fort Worth, and they could read whatever they wanted to read. And, you know, it was hard for the Oscar Wilde Bookshop, just to, the, to name them, but it was a great opportunity for people to be able to see themselves in literature and have a much fuller experience of themselves wherever they lived. And this, I feel, is like an expansion of that just uh, in a larger way, in a bigger part of their life. So I, I love, I'm going to just go on a limb and say, I think you're an optimist, Tanfo. Would that be accurate? Yeah. You know, I, I tend to be very optimistic, you know? <laughs> For people who can't see you, because this is audio only, you usually have a smile on your face when I, that's how I think yeah, of you. Yeah, you know? Um, which I really dig. Um, it's, I, I like that about you. Thank you for being that person. Um, I'm going to, we're going to wrap it up. I just, I really want to thank you for spending time with me and educating people. This has been the most broad ranging conversation. <laughs> I think that's a testament to the kind of person you are. And I'm really looking forward to a time when I can have you back when you're talking about what you're up to with the new situation that you'll be in. And uh, who knows how our paths will cross. I, Cross. I'd love to get a coffee with you when we're allowed to actually be in the same place and have a coffee, mm -hmm. um, if that works for you. I know we live not that far away from each other. Um, I know, you know? It's pretty Who cool. knows? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, we can meet each other's spouses and hang out. It would be really great. Thank you, yeah, Diane, for, be for, being, for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I really appreciate your time and I appreciate you. Yeah, you know, and thank you again for having me on board. It's been like a really lovely conversation. And who knows, by the time, again, by the time this podcast airs, we're currently in like phase two slash three of New York City, which means theoretically we could have outdoor dining, but who wants to actually like sit on a rickety table in the middle of a crowded sidewalk in the middle of 90 degree heat? Not me. I don't know. Mm, not <laughs> me either. I think you and I will be seeing each other in the fall. <laughs> hopefully hopefully if, if the wave dies down who knows yeah. yes <laughs> yeah. please well thanks again great to see you yes great to see you too well there you have it Diana Fell I hope you enjoyed spending time with her as much as I did and do and I'll bet you learned something. Um, and I hope you continue to come back here to meet fascinating people, talk about interesting things. And remember, no matter what's happening in your life, if you go get some Abe's muffins, it's only gonna get better. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to write to me. Go to isthatreallylegal.com You'll see a form, you can talk to me about the show, about Abe's Muffins, about potential guests. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to talking to you soon. Be well. Bye-bye.